0: Okay, welcome everyone uh, to another uh, OrthoEvidence uh, World Tour. We are um, in Canada. We've been we've been traveling the world virtually all day, uh, and here we are in Canada. And I think we've got visitors from around the world visiting us tonight. It's um, seven thirty or so PM right now, and we are moving. Uh, towards sharing with you a really interesting discussion. So it, it'll start off focusing on tumor surgery, but I'm pretty sure we, this will be applicable uh, to the broader issue of orthopedics and probably even larger in terms of healthcare research. So let me first, if I could, just give a, um, a couple of uh, basic reminders. During the event, this event is recorded, we'll ask that while our presenters are speaking, if you don't mind keeping yourself off video and muted, However, I'm gonna ask for you to come back on video the minute we're done. We're gonna likely have ourselves some, quite a bit of time, we hope tonight, to be able to discuss uh, and interact. The, the, the value of what we're gonna be doing is just that. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're hoping to do this evening. What is this OE Insights World Tour that we've planned? It's limited capacity by design. So this is different than the webinar style in which we are really actively looking for engagement. So you're gonna see and we hope that we'll get some uh, interaction, but at a level where you'll be able to directly, visually and uh, verbally interact with us rather than using the chat function. That doesn't mean you can't use it, but we'd like for you to be doing everything you can uh, to engage uh, in the way that you can. So let me just start us off on where we're gonna be heading off um, uh, on this evening. The treatment of rare diseases, such as those managed by orthopedic oncologists is challenged by a relatively low volume of cases at many centers, in fact, clinical practice is therefore not guided by evidence but described experience of senior surgeons. The Musculoskeletal Tumor Society has, over the past few years, made a concerted effort to start bringing and, and bridging surgeons together um, towards studying the treatment and outcomes in orthopedic oncology. This requires collaboration, um, and, however, not only across centers but uh, within one country, but across centers internationally. And this is where the real challenge lies. So there's been this huge movement um, and there's no one better, I believe, to share with us how this movement has moved forward than a longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Michelle Gert, who serves as professor of orthopedic surgery at McMaster University. Welcome, Michelle.
1: Thank you, Mo. And thank you for inviting me and everybody who's joined. Uh, it's good to see everybody. Um, I'd like to first introduce my special guest. Uh, Dr. Brett Ben Miller is an associate professor in Iowa. He's an orthopedic oncologist like myself and, and a very uh, close collaborator. And uh, Ben has uh, initiated the uh, first ever MSTS registry, which is something that we've been talking about for literally decades. And he actually was able to get enough funding and get enough impetus and get enough collaboration so that he's actually started this uh, Um, Registry, which is really exciting because it can only get bigger and and more centers will collaborate. So he's really been I think he's done a harder job than I have. um, Because he's worked mostly with them. I've I've gone uphill, but he's gone up a very steep slope. So I'm very happy to introduce Ben and uh, Here he is.
2: Good. Well, thanks. Uh, Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Mo. Um, Abby Brad others. It's uh, It's great to be um, invited to do this. Really, it sounds like a really interesting discussion that's about to happen. So um, as Michelle alluded to, I'm gonna spend a couple minutes just talking about the musculoskeletal tumor registry. Um, There's a whole history and story behind it. I'm gonna skip over some of that. We can certainly come back to it if it becomes uh, relevant, but primarily I wanted to talk about um, kind of the thought process of starting the registry where we are now a little bit and then um, potentially where the registry could go. So I don't have any financial conflicts of interest. I'm involved in the AOS in a couple of capacities. So the next slide, so this will show, um, this is basically a slide I put together um, for a different talk at one of the MSTS meetings. It was actually when we were kind of starting or introducing the Mori group, which was a group of young collaborators. And I think myself and, and the people that were involved in that initial group this is the frustration that we had with musculoskeletal oncology research is that the majority of um, the research that was done were done in a single center they were retrospective Um, they were trying to answer the same questions over and over and over again and weren't able to do it and so i think that we thought um, and a lot of this uh, this session today i think is going to focus on how do we get away from this idea of the single center retrospective study and actually start to answer some real questions. So the next slide just um, really identifies the way that the AOS family registries is oriented for a number of reasons. The MSTS registry is housed uh, under the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And there's a lot of overlap, um, really, I think, without exception, and STS members or AOS members. So, It really worked well for us to do it this way. There was some institutional knowledge with the American Joint Replacement Registry about how to implement these things, how to get it through um, ethical approval, how to formulate this as a quality and patient safety registry. Um, And so we've actually had pretty good interaction with the AOS, and I think this was certainly the way to go about it. The other thing that I point out is we are in there with the big boys. So AJRR came first, shoulder and elbow came second, and then musculoskeletal tumor came third. And we are by far the least represented subsection of orthopedic surgery, and I think it is a huge victory that we got them to turn their attention onto us, and it is in no small measure because of... Um, Our successful argument that orthopedic oncologists are collaborators by nature, and we felt that there was going to be a huge amount of enthusiasm and participation in the registry. We can go to the next slide, and this um, just talks about as we were defining what the musculoskeletal tumor registry should do, we had a number of pillars that we really um, wanted to make sure that we were true to throughout the design of this. So one is that we wanted to collect research quality data. So this includes patient tumor and treatment details. It includes oncologic outcomes of local recurrence, metastasis and complications, but also outcomes that are really near and dear to surgeons, functional outcomes and quality of life. And this alone would distinguish us from other cancer registries. So there's a number of cancer registries. There's a few sarcoma registries, but none of them collect this amount of material to this amount of detail. And it was really being informed by prior studies and research that when we were figuring out what data elements to collect, and this was a years long process to figure out what really is critical about this, um, is we wanted to be able to answer these questions that have uh, thus far become unanswerable. Um, Another priority we had was to minimize the burden of data entry. Um, so we didn't want this to be uh, a big paper form that uh, practitioners or providers would have to fill out on everybody. We didn't want this to be something that would be subjugated to administrative assistants or secretaries. We really wanted something that the provider was able to fill out in a short amount of time that would give us the critical elements that we needed. Um, fortunately, uh, at this period in history, we have electronic health records in the majority of institutions. And again, part of what we've been doing these last couple of years is trying to implement these um, EHRs to be able to uh, give really an easy means of entering data by the practitioner themselves. And then the final thing we were really guided by was being inclusive to everyone um, who was interested in joining the registry from the MSDS and the AOS. Okay, we can go to the next slide. So that's that kind of a background. Again, it's really a short overview. There's a lot more that um, detail that we could get into if they come up in any discussion, um, discussion points. Um, the registry has uh, its limitations and it has its uh, ideals. Um, some of the things that we'd like to do with it might not be possible, and there's some things that maybe we haven't thought about that we could do with it. For right now, so the registry is still in its infancy. So we just got done as as Michelle alluded to, we were fortunate enough to be awarded an REF grant um, that was one of the MSTS grants and that allowed us to perform a pilot trial, um, engage six institutions uh, to start enrolling patients, um, engage six surgeons to start to figure out what the data elements and forms should look like and to um, buy some IT time in order to create the registry. So what our goal is today is we want to enroll as many institutions as we can. So currently we have, I believe the most recent numbers are 10 enrolled and um, about 40 interested or in the process of of contracting. So when you think about perhaps 100 sites in the United States really that would do orthopedic oncology where we have a pretty good head start. Um, I think we all have our eye on where do we go after the United States. I think Canada actually is the most obvious place. And um, this topic was actually broached, not formally, but recently discussed um, the MSTS possibly being an international registry, given the small nature of it, and given the enthusiasm of, um, of uh, partnership and collaboration. And I think looking to Canada, given that they are AOS members, um, by and large, would be a good place to go. Currently, it's a sarcoma registry. I think we all see that we could add metastatic disease of bone and spine, that those are really important um, and things that that we can use the infrastructure that we've already built to add on to. And then the most exciting thing to think about, I think, is is when you theorize, you know, where could we go with the MST registry in the future? I think there is a role for international collaboration, um, whether it be under the umbrella of the MST registry or whether it just be an agreement to all collect the same data elements. Um, because honestly, I don't think that all the data needs to be in the same place, as long as we all agree that we're looking at the same things and the same outcome measures. Um, I don't think that the MST registry is, has the feasible ability to create its own tissue bank or implant retrieval mechanisms, but I feel like there are mechanisms in place that already exist, and we can um, explore ways that we can communicate Um, with these tissue banks and implant retrieval, and and certainly we can answer many more questions with that kind of data than just um, patient and and electronic record data alone. We're already looking to uh, opportunities to host clinical trials through this. David Greenberg, who um, I think was invited to this, I don't know if he's on, but he uh, has a uh, giant cell tumor prospective randomized clinical trial, randomized controlled trial uh, with Francis Lee, and we actually are collecting enough data elements within the registry to think that perhaps we could host the data collection through the registry. So efforts like this to be able to enhance collaboration, to enhance clinical trial data collection. And then finally, using things like risk calculators and specifically what I think about with this is in metastatic disease of bone, using survival predictors, using pathologic fracture prediction tools, these are certainly things that we can implement within the registry as well. Um, these would have applications both in research, but also um, improving clinical practice and and patient care. And honestly, with all of our research efforts, that truly is the final goal to all of this. So uh, that's really the summary of of what I wanted to say. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing Michelle and then hearing everyone's thoughts. So thanks for the invitation.
1: Okay, thank you, Ben. And uh, really exciting that traction is really exciting. And uh, I'm very happy to step into the, the next discussion, which really just rolls right in from yours. Uh, we're gonna talk about randomized trials and the collaboration that has needed to come together to do these in orthopedic oncology. And it really is like herding cats because uh, as Ben alluded to, um, are, we are a bunch of cats in orthopedic oncology, uh, at least historically. So uh, next slide, please. So my experience comes from the parity trial, the prophylactic antibiotic regimens and tumor surgery trial. So that's where I'll be coming from. Next slide. Advance. Yeah. So this is similar to what uh, Ben showed that um, his his data was from 2013. And then this actually goes up to 2014, the previous uh, 10 years. And we looked at the podium presentations at MSTS. Uh, versus OTA, which is a trauma association. And you can see there's a lot of orange on the left for MSTS. So the vast majority of our research uh, is level four case series with a virtually non-existent randomized trials, prospective randomized trials. Uh, orthopedic Trauma Association, mostly due to the initially around the, the turn of the millennium due to what Mo did um, uh, with the SPRINT trial, uh, started uh, actually hurting the cats in orthopedic trauma. And now they're actually running randomized trials, and it's it's probably you know at this point this is 2014 much increasingly common to have level one or two evidence on their podiums, which is a very different story than, orth, than orthopedic oncology, and and our orange bars have not changed uh, until 2020. This is exactly the way it is at all of our meetings. So uh, this is very difficult because we are basically uh, trying to pull silos together and uh, herd cats to try to work together. So how does that work? How can we collaborate? So advanced slide, please. The first step is you really need a universal and vexing clinical problem. If people are gonna work together, it's gotta be something that they find interesting and important and something they wanna, a problem they wanna solve. So advanced slide, please. So, we have a big problem in orthopedic oncology. Uh, we do very big surgeries. This is an extra particular knee resection. And um, next slide. Then we put in a bunch of metal, which is prime real estate for biofilm and bacteria. Advance. And then we try to close it with whatever we can find in the vicinity. And then we put on some pixie dust and we wave a magic wand and we hope it doesn't get infected. Um, next slide. So, we do get infected implants. And they're not just prosthetic joint infections, they're prosthetic hip, knee, femur infections all in one. So they're very, very challenging. And we try to, we limit the risk for infection as much as we possibly can, though it's still very challenging. But what we do give, uh, what we do is give patients pair antibiotics. So next slide, please. Uh, next slide. In advance, So we we did a systematic review just to find out what's the rate of infection, prosthetic joint infection, and is published of all the studies. And these are all retrospective case series, are ten percent. So this is this is probably somewhat of an underestimation because of publication bias, but this is very high. We quote patients for arthroplasty total joints less than one percent. So this is this is up to a hundred times more common. Next slide. So we asked surgeons in a survey what do you do with antibiotics to prevent infection? Advance, please. So we, we found out that through this survey that basically we're all over the map. And again, we're a bunch of cats. So 35% for 24 hours, all the way up to 41% of surgeons will leave antibiotics running in the patient until uh, the suction drain is removed. So we really don't have an idea of what to do. Um, And the next step would be to answer this question, how do we prevent infections with antibiotics? So once you have the really important question, you need to design a clear and valid and pragmatic study design so that um, you can answer that question in the real world world setting um, and that a type of study that other researchers or surgeons and researchers would be able to join uh, from a, a pragmatic standpoint. Uh, next slide, please. So the parity trial design sounds very, very simple. Um, any s- patient that has a primary bone tumor or soft tissue sarcoma invading bone, or patient with a bone disease of the femur or tibia that are uh, about to go under un- undergo resection of the tumor and endoprosthetic reconstruction. Uh, would be included with some other um, criteria, but that's a very simple uh, view of it. And they're randomized to 24 hours of post-op antibiotics, which is more or less what is used in total joint arthroplasty, uh, or five days. Next slide. So this is a blinded study, uh, advance, please. Uh, Everybody's blinded in the study, including the participants and the care providers, data collectors and OCOM assessors, except for the pharmacist who randomizes the patient and prepares the antibiotics or a placebo. Okay, next slide. So, how many patients do we need? Well, we—I know the published event rate was fourteen; it was ten percent. But our first initial group of patients enrolled—the uh, in- event rate of surgical site infection was fourteen percent. And so, with a, a hope for a relative risk reduction, we would need six hundred patients. So, the largest volume centers in the world would take six to 10 years to enroll 600 patients. I would take 100. So I didn't think we could do this by ourselves. We need lots of people to help us with this study. So uh, next slide, please. We need to collaborate. Next slide. So we asked in the same survey where we asked surgeons, how much antibiotics do they give postoperatively? We asked, would you be willing to participate in a randomized trial? And this is in 2012. Uh, Next slide, please and eighty seven percent yes now there's a very big difference between clicking on a button saying yes and actually participating in a trial but this was this was a positive sign. next slide, please. okay, and I just advance a bit, please. so as we were uh, starting the trial, we asked surgeons involved if they could meet with us one very early morning at the msts meeting uh, before the meeting started, and we had a uh, a collaborative discussion it was a, it was a um, uh, a study where we basically, it was, uh, we sat down and we asked questions and we um, wanted to find out why they were participating in parity, what were the barriers and facilitators. And there's a lot of words that are highlighted there, but just to summarize, surgeons felt like it was, that it was very, very important that they wanted to learn how to do trials. They wanted to work together. There was a really strong sense of wanting to move forward in the field but there's a lot of barriers and they they range from personal barriers, financial barriers, institutional barriers. Um, But what has been been, uh, enabling them to overcome the barriers are some facilitators, including some institutional support. Um, Having a centralized coordinating center was very, very important. And um, the actual uh, ability, uh, the thought of becoming an author in one of these studies, it really does uh, support uh, researchers in their institutions, if they could be a local PI in a randomized trial. So all these things have helped pe- push people over the mountaintop and allowed them to start collaborating. But there have been there's a there's a strong sense of fatigue in dealing with all the barriers because they are endless, seemingly endless. Okay, next, please. So we started up and we and this is the next step. We got um, all the way up to 55 sites. Uh, So it was a very gradual process, but once we learned why surgeons were not participating and why they were, we were able to work with those barriers and facilitators and start paving the way for other sites. So in the end, we had 55 sites in 12 countries and six continents. We had over 150 investigators working together. Next slide. These are the countries that randomized patients. There's a total of 12. Next slide. And uh, we completed enrollment October of 2019, something that I actually didn't think we would ever, I, I wasn't sure, I just didn't think about failure. I, I just wanted every day to get up and have hope that we could, we could actually do this. And we recently had our last DSMB meeting, that was this, this week, last week. And when we closed, when I got off the phone, it was the first time I realized that we actually finished this study. And we're very lucky to finish the study in 2019 because there's been, as you know, some difficulties with patient enrollment and follow-up since then. So we're able to complete enrollment before the pandemic. And our plan is to have the results ready for next fall. The last follow-up will be in October. Next slide, please. So just some interesting tidbits about where these patients come from. The country that enrolled the most patients was the United States. Uh, dark blue, followed by Canada in light green, and then turquoise was India. Next slide, please. But interestingly, this the country with the most number of patients per site continuously was India, completely eclipsed all the other countries. Um, Canada was second, uh, seven and a half patients uh, per site per year, and that was mostly pushed through by uh, Toronto, but also uh, McGill University was very busy and followed by United States uh, was, um, oh sorry, seven point, yeah, then then Brazil was 4.5 and then 2.5 for United States. So even though United States enrolled the most patients, the per site enrollment was was significantly smaller than other countries. Next slide. So we looked at the recruitment patterns um, and we've submitted this for publication. We'll see what sort of feedback we get, but we wanted to know uh, what kind of sites were more likely to enroll, which kind of sites took too long to enroll, um, which were the star players. And so on the left, you can see uh, the bar diagram shows the number of patients enrolled per month. So it, it increased steadily over the course of the study, though there were some good months and bad months. But, and the number of sites is the yellow graph. And we actually, you can see that it goes up and up until almost the last year of the study. We actually had sites join us within the last year or two before we closed out. so the interest and the collaboration just grew over the course of, of the years of the study and uh, just to summarize briefly on, on the right, what we found was international sites outside of North America took longer to enroll to start up sorry they took longer to start up because mostly probably related to regulatory bodies because we were using a drug ANSAF. Um, and also because of we had to translate documents into different languages, so that took longer. But they did enroll significantly more patients once they were up and running. So we found that the internal international sites were more challenging to get up and running, but were very productive once they started enrolling. And we also found that public publicly funded studies were more likely, of, sorry, publicly funded hospitals were more likely to enroll quicker. And of course, uh, a not surprising finding is that research personnel were important in, in helping the site get up and running as quickly as possible. Okay, next slide. So our next step is the next trial. Now that we've completed enrollment and we're looking towards the future, uh, we did a, a modified Delphi study a few years ago and asked our uh, international community uh, in a stepwise process, what is the most, what are the most important research questions and also ones that we think we can actually answer and we, the number one that came up, and this was a, a very uh, upfront, out, out, of the, out of the field front runner, uh, but does less intensive surveillance of sarcoma patients affect survival? So we follow patients after sarcoma surgery, and we probably follow them a little too much and a little too often, because um, with soft tissue we don't really have any options uh, if they do end up with relapse, particularly in the lungs. So this is a very compelling research question. Next slide. So we began our next step of designing a protocol, and this was our protocol development meeting. We have our illustrious Mo there, and also um, Ben Miller is in the room. Uh, this was two years ago. We had some absolutely brilliant minds in the room, and we hashed out a protocol over the course of a whole day at the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Next slide. So this has been published as a preprint, the protocol. So anybody can look it up and sort of see if they feel that their center would be able to participate. And we've also uh, published it as open access journa- an open access journal. Next slide. So these are international collaborators by site. It would take a very long time to read through all of them, but these are the people that have uh, come together to form this collaborative group and um, they are the uh, front in our society that hopefully 10, 20 years from now, people will point to them and say that, you know, you're, you're the ones who started this because I really hope that when I retire that the podiums at MSTS are not 95% case series. And, um, next slide. Again, this is a global network that we can't do this alone. We can't even do this alone in Canada or United States. We have to work together. So collaboration is, number, uh, is the number one factor in success in this type of research. And that's it, thank you.